Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And in a minute, you're going to hear me talk to Elliot Brown from the Wall Street Journal about WeWork and the amazing book he's put out about that amazing story. I keep saying the word amazing because it's a really good book. It's a great story. But first, a very quick ask for you folks. We, that is me and my bosses, would like you to take a very fast survey so you can tell us what you like about this podcast and other Vox Media podcasts. Your responses will help us understand who's listening to our shows, what kind of stuff our audience is looking for, and maybe how we can even grow that audience. This is easy. I promise I've done it. Go to vox.com slash survey. That's vox.com slash survey. See, I told you this was a quick, fast ask. Okay, here's your show. My guest today is Elliot Brown. He is the co-author, along with Maureen Farrell, of The Cult of We. It is an excellent book about the spectacular rise and fall of WeWork and its founder, Adam Newman. Welcome, Elliot. Thanks for having me. It's a great book. I can recommend it. I literally took it to the pool on vacation. Um, people said, what is this book, Cult of We? And now I can tell them it's about WeWork. Um, I think everyone listening to this podcast remembers WeWork, but again, the spectacular implosion of WeWork is less than two years ago, but it's been a busy couple years in between then. So, so give us the super short synopsis of the rise and fall of WeWork, and then we can talk about covering it, turning it into a book, what role the press had in WeWork's ascent and descent, um, and what lessons we've learned. But before we get there, just set the table for us. Okay. What was WeWork and, and wh why did it blow up? So I'll try to give the uh, 280 character version. WeWork was uh, a co-working space, shared office space, started by a former baby clothes salesman who then managed to convince the world that uh, the investment world that it was a disruptive tech company. And he raised over $10 billion to build the country's most valuable startup. Uh, and then it was this uh, emperor's new clothes tale when the whole financial world realized it was not, in fact, a tech startup and just a boring real estate company that lost over $2 billion a year. And it uh, had a very high altitude tailspin that uh, was an extremely well-covered uh, immolation. There was a lot of money that got burned, and then the guy burning it did it in a spectacular way. And there was drugs. Not not too much sex, I think, actually. Not too much sex. And the drugs were relatively tame, um, but done in amusing ways. Adam, um, Adam Newman, the CEO, was, I often like to say, God's gift to journalism. He just is this walking trail of anecdotes and uh, hyperbole and hypocrisy. Um, who made our jobs uh, very easy to make stories that that are uh, entertaining, but also show sort of a broader point in Silicon Valley. So, so that's what made me so kind of fascinated by this topic because I was pretty close to it for years, and then it just became like this super high profile thing that showed up all of these crazy things that I'd been angsting about in Silicon Valley for years. There's the individual story and then what it tells us about the rest of the world. And while Adam Newman, who you know, rags to riches and and then he's not in rags anymore. He's still he, buying. He is, is still extremely rich by, yeah. by any objective measure. He's buying multi-gazillion dollar 
properties in, in Miami, I think, most recently. <laughs> yes. um, he He's the villain and the culprit, but he's not the sole player here. He couldn't have done this without the help of of some of the biggest and bold-faced names in, in business, right? Venture capitals from Benchmark and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, uh, SoftBank, uh, Masayoshi San, um, all enabled him to do this. And he and, and to be clear, he wasn't committing fraud as far as we can tell. They gave him the money and then let him spend it uh, irrationally. Yeah, what what we um, were really so you know I, I was covering the story for, for for sort of years since the early days of WeWork, but then um, after the rise and fall were sort of complete at the end of 2019, Maureen and I uh, wanted to do a book, and and the thing that we thought was not well covered, uh, well or exhaustively covered was the enablers. Like, w- what was the system that that made this man? you know, be able to raise $10 billion. And, uh, I think sort of the narrative at the time was like, it was all just Adam fooling the world. But, um, what we wanted to point out was, uh, this could have been anyone. Um, the, the system essentially was structured to encourage kind of visionary, semi-crazy, maybe even not semi, founders to uh, make super messianic statements and essentially become these total egomaniacs and and take money and spend it wildly. So um, what we did for the book was, was, yeah, really focus on how this guy was able to do that and what are all the structures, the VCs, the the mutual funds, where was all the money coming from? Why was it uh, structured in a way that you essentially just give a kind of wild child the keys to the car? Um, and and billions of dollars to spend as as he likes. And the reason you do it, by the way, is because you're hoping that person, at least uh, from a business perspective, turns out to be Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yes, that's the pattern match that everyone has been doing, and that's and in many cases it has worked, right? At least from the investing side. Yeah, I mean it's it's also not worked in a lot of cases too. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think one of the so so getting a little wonky and specific. I mean, one of the biggest elements of the WeWork story that that sort of I took away was it's a tale of founder control. And we used to have this thing in the world where a founder like Jeff Bezos would would start a company and people would believe in him and they'd also believe in the business and then it would go public and Jeff Bezos would own forty percent of the stock. And he would control 40% of the company, but not over 50%. So shareholders actually had a say. But sort of in the post-Google age, uh, you've had this, this meme, essentially, in venture capital that founders need full control. And uh, because there's so much money piling to get in, they give it to the founders. And so then, essentially, the natural progression of this is you're going to have the occasional Mark Zuckerberg, but you're also going to have people that are <laughs> completely not... Um, sort of fit to, to take $10 billion and spend it responsibly. And they're going to do something totally crazy uh, because, you know, I mean, some of these venture capitalists actually, um, even if Founders Fund says on their website, they're looking for founders that have near messianic qualities. Like, what do you think was going to happen? <laughs> but to be clear, the, the founder control or the sole control of a public company, a public company that's essentially a private company because one person or one family runs it, um, is not specific to tech. There's a bunch of media examples, including mm-hmm. your employer, yes. uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, News Corp, uh, bought the Wall Street Journal, had been run by another family, the Bancrofts. Uh, the, the New York Times is, is a public company. It's 
essentially privately controlled. Uh, Viacom CBS is the Redstone family business. There's a, there's a few of these. So it's not specific to tech, but it is now standard for tech in these new companies. And in BuzzFeed, if it does go public, will combine the two. It'll be a media and tech company controlled by Jonah Peretti, even though he won't own the majority of the stock. So that's my long caveat there. How did you get onto the story? So I actually started as a real estate reporter at the Journal, and it was 2013, and I was just interested in the office market um, and what was going on in New York. And there were a bunch of, I knew some writers who were working in co-working spaces. It was the sort of buzzy new trend showing, you know, shifting millennial tastes in the workplace. And I met WeWork, they were fast growing at the time. And met Adam then and was sort of uh, intrigued. And he, he told me, he sat me down and he's like, look, um, you know, he was full of energy uh, and, and sort of everything you, you hear and think about him. And, and he's like, uh, look, you're a real estate reporter. This isn't a real estate story. Uh, do you have anyone there at the journal who covers community companies? And my answer was no, uh, <laughs> but I would cover you as a real estate company. His um, suggestion was that he, he, while he wanted coverage in national publications like the Wall Street Journal, he didn't want to be confined to the backwaters of real estate coverage. Yeah. And, and, and exactly. Like, and, and I found this puzzling at the time. And so then sort of. And uh, insulting since it was yeah. your job. <laughs> I, I, I have thick skin. I can take it. Um, I, I also can do. I, I was actually intrigued by his thought, which was like, actually, there's like burgeoning entrepreneurship. And he gave me some stats. But then I went back to the office and talked to our econ correspondent who who knows about this stuff. He's like, oh, actually, entrepreneurship has been falling for two decades. It's like, and so uh, the more I sort of looked into it, the, eventually I realized there was actually something really interesting in why Adam didn't want a real estate reporter to cover it. And that's because um, when it, essentially the light bulb moment was when I heard their valuation. And so this was 2014 and they were worth $1.5 billion. Um, and I knew what a building was worth. Uh, and, and they had a lot less space than a building. They leased the space. They didn't own it. And I was like, what on earth is this? And then I eventually I sort of figured it out. It's like, oh, if you're marketing yourself as a real estate company, you'd never be worth $1.5 billion. And if you market yourself as a tech company or a community company or a consciousness elevating company, then, then you can get a really high valuation. And I'm just curious. I, I My first job out of college was covering commercial real estate. Uh, really? Minnesota Real Estate Journal. I'm sure you've read my, my work there. And I actually found it kind of interesting because there's real estate has, by kind of definition, interesting characters. One of them was our last president. Um, but even locally, if you if, uh, you know people who own buildings and lease buildings, I thought were kind of interesting, weird, quirky characters. Always. Um, sort of out of time. Um, but it's not a sexy beat. And generally, uh, it's not how you're going to sort of fast track yourself. How did you, did you think, oh, this is a story that's going to vault me out of the real estate section of the <laughs> journal? I happen to like real estate. I also, um, at a Minnesota college, did a uh, sort of a thesis on failed urban development in, in um, the Twin Cities and was like totally fascinated by economic development, uh, more on the politics side. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I actually started doing it first when I got to New York. And New York real estate is, is, is largely a political story. But um, yeah, I, I happen to love that. Uh, and no, like the office market was probably at the Journal was less exciting to cover than, than New York City political real estate. But I enjoyed it. And no, it, it was more organic. Like basically I was covering WeWork and then was sort of sitting on the train in, in New York looking at these subway ads for all of these venture-backed startups uh, that made absolutely no sense to me. Like I, I took one econ class in college, um, but could 
tell you pretty clearly that these businesses, these startups that were advertising on the subway made absolutely no economic sense. Um, and so I was sort of just getting angry about coverage out in Silicon Valley. And it was like that, that people aren't asking harder questions about like, well, are these even viable businesses? Um, why are they worth so much? And so um, that sort of combined was <laughs> growing angst on my part was happening at the same time that WeWork was getting more and more valuable. Uh, and so um, eventually uh, I just sort of switched beats to, to move out to San Francisco when a job opened up. Uh, you said, I, w- I want to cover the engine that is propelling things like WeWork. I, I think, you know, I've, I've been doing various kinds of tech coverage for a long time, and I'm always struck by the fact that very often the companies that get a lot of coverage are companies that are easiest to understand. For people like you and me, we all know how to use Facebook and Twitter, and there's mm-hmm. sort of over-index um, when it comes to stuff like life science. Generally, you have to actually know something about science or medicine to cover that stuff. Not too many stories on Snowflake. Yeah, and, or enterprise software. Um, even ad tech is, is pretty difficult to cover. If Even if you're in the business, it's hard to understand what, how the ad tech works. And WeWork's pretty interesting because it's actually a super simple business, right? You rent real estate from an office and then you sublease it to other people. And it seems like they intentionally tried to obfuscate that both to investors and the press for a long time by saying they were something other than what they were. Yeah, th- that was sort of the magic. And and I, I mean, if I said that, nobody would listen to me. But but Adam has is kind of the the world's one of the world's great salesmen and just had this way of, of uh, you know, at, at heart, he was just a storyteller, uh, which is something we see a lot in Silicon Valley. But he was a really good one and was able to get people to look at a real estate company and see something else. I mean, like it was just so clear. If you look at their numbers, it's like, well, all of their money is coming from rent. All of their expenses are <laughs> like rent to, to landlords, other building expenses. And then also these other things like surf pools and, and sort of elementary yeah. schools and these crazy extraneous things. But but certainly all their money was coming from rent. They just called it membership fees. A flag to me was, and you even described it at the beginning of this conversation, but you said it's a co-working company, right? It, um, it was this, this new, like in the same way that, that Uber was a ride-sharing company. It's, 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 right. They're, they're not that, right? Uber it lets you hire a, a car temporarily using your app. Um, and this idea that WeWork was co-working space where part of the idea was you were supposed to enjoy working with other people who weren't in your company but were sharing space um, was something that 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 WeWork played up a lot. And whenever I read a story extolling the the community aspects of WeWork, it raised a flag for me because I'd worked in WeWorks and they were fine places to go work with your coworkers, not to work with other people you didn't know. Um, how did that take hold, the idea that, that co-working was a thing or that there was a community component to WeWork that made it different than Sunshine Suites or Regis or anything else? I think it, at, at a macro level, Adam just, you know, WeWork just struck at the exact right time in, in the, the, you know, the popular imagination where the sharing economy was uh, this beaming beacon from Silicon Valley. And so, you know, Uber and Airbnb were proving to be these really great bets that the media loved and that uh, investors really loved. Uh, and so he was able to glom onto that by saying, well, look, our people are, you know, share a common space. And so he'd literally say, you know, there are lots of quotes like we are to offices, what, what Uber is to taxis and what Airbnb is to, uh, apartments. And, 
I mean, maybe to illustrate the point of how obvious this was to me, that they're completely different. Uh, and I, I think, you know, people who would stop a minute to think about it critically, my like 90 year old grandmother uh, once was sort of reading a draft of a chapter and she's like, how could he say that? It's a completely different business model. <laughs> I mean, you know, to, to make the point for anyone who doesn't get it, I mean, Uber and Airbnb are marketplaces. They don't own or lease the taxis or, or homes. Uh, they just take a cut. WeWork is on the hook. They're, they have all the risk on, on these leases and, and spend, you know, now billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars on, on rent. Even if you were susceptible to that argument and didn't think about it that carefully or hadn't stepped foot in a WeWork and, and, and you know, some of the other parts of the story made it seem even like that there had to be something else going on there because they were going to do this uh, We Live, you were going to do communal living. By the time WeWork was getting ready to go public, there were a million red flags, and most of them were flags that that you had planted in the Wall Street Journal. You and Maureen, my former coworker at, at Forbes, um, had written explaining how conflicted and problematic Adam Newman and, and WeWork were. Can you explain some of the sort of giant red flags that, that you were writing about? Yeah, so it was sort of in two buckets. I, I'd say the first, like WeWork coverage 1.0 in the journal was pointing out that uh, again and again, that this thing has the valuation of a tech company, but all of the look, feel, and smell of a real estate company. And it's not like a little different. It's like 20 times different, right, in terms of what, you, what you'd value it at. And so um, every time we'd write a story, it seemed the valuation went up and they raised a ton more money. Uh, and so every time I'd be like, well, the investors will see this now. And it's like, well, now they're worth 20 billion. And again, you weren't writing this in some random blog. And you right. weren't, and you weren't an aggrieved short seller. You're writing this in the the business paper of record. Yeah, and and you know, doing it in a journal way, so it's sort of small c conservative, and like we aren't, we're we're laying out the facts. But then again, like one of the headlines in 2017 was, uh, you know, we were on the front page of the journal was that we were used Silicon Valley pixie dust to to market itself as a tech company. So that's 1.0, and. Obviously, the market didn't react much to that, and there was a lot of kind of glowing coverage elsewhere. Um, then 2.0 was kind of the the, um, the conflicts uh, and um, the corporate governance issues, and so yeah, it just kind of became essentially what happened is is Adam, as he, his his head got bigger and the valuation got bigger, he got that much more brazen and bold, and didn't really didn't care about conflicts, um, and so he was doing all these things that a, a CEO of any well run company would not do. So. Um, one of the big stories was, you know, he was leasing properties to WeWork uh, that that he owned um, or owned in part. He uh, so he's was, on both sides of the transaction. Yeah, and so it's like, well, if WeWork needs to break a lease or stop paying rent to a building, like, kind of would be awkward if the CEO owned that building. Like, it's pretty hard to imagine that they'd have a nice independent dialogue there. Um, so that's a problem for WeWork. That's a problem for its investors. And, uh, you know, that story, we did that at the beginning of 2019 and, and it went pretty viral. Then there were just, you know, looking at how he was spending all of this money on his hobbies, essentially. He was, uh, he started an elementary school for $40,000 a year for kids. And he and his wife said explicitly it was because they didn't know where to send their children. And then they're like, oh, now we're going to reform education for the rest of the world. 
Um, he, he was giving money to, uh, a, Laird Hamilton's, um, his friend, his surfer friend, Laird Hamilton's coffee creamer company, which, by the way, was the second coffee creamer company that they'd invested in through this giant pot of money they had from from SoftBank. Uh, he he bought a jet uh, with WeWork's money, the top of the line jet, because he liked jets. And <laughs> as he told one investor once, he's like, ah, I'm very tall. It's hard to go uh, on, on a normal plane. He bought a wave pool company. He, he bought a wave surf. pool company. And again, these aren't these aren't personal investments. I mean, he took out a ton of money from the company and bought real estate from himself, but these were things that he got WeWork to buy. And they were out, they were done in public. Yeah. I, I mean, some of them were, were well, a lot of them first had to come out in the Wall Street Journal. Uh-huh. Uh, but but yeah, others of them, like the elementary school, were, were sort of very out there for everyone to see. Though even like one investor once told me, he's like, I was talking to Adam and it took me like 10 minutes into our conversation to realize that this elementary school that he was talking about was he was using WeWork's money and not his own. Like I didn't, you know, this was an early investor in WeWork. Um, so it, it was really brazen. And then like, sort of the, the, I think one of the, the biggest things that happened is people realized, you know, and we reported how much money he had taken out of the company. And actually we, we were hundreds of millions of dollars shy of the, the real number. What was the ultimate pullout? Uh, well, so it depends where and how you want to count. But if you just do, if you do cash and debt, um, it was, uh, you know, an entity that he controlled plus debt that he took on was over a billion dollars um, while he was CEO. Prior to going public, prior to the exit package he got. Correct. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it, it sort of got, got bigger from there, um, it, you know, with the exit package and then remaining stock. But it, it really, the debt was 500 million of that. So subtract 500 million if you don't want to count that. So but. I didn't have a stake in this. And I was frustrated in the coverage <laughs> um, by non-Wall Street Journal reporters up until that point. What was it like for you to be doing this reporting and to see the company's value increase and then to see someone again we're we're not calling him a fraud because that's a specific word but but someone who who was not what he claimed to be uh fetid and 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 lionized in in media and conferences uh luckily recode never had him on a stage or put him on a cover um it, it was uh incredibly frustrating um I, and and to be fair i mean there were there were others in the sort of i break it into two buckets there's sort of the, the tech press and then there's uh sort of the, the more traditional outlets uh bloomberg did some good stuff uh the real deal good did some good stuff and uh buzzfeed did a good story and pretty early uh, but but generally, like the the predominant coverage was uh, like these really gauzy Forbes profiles, uh, the a fast really gauzy fast company profile, a WeWork Sunday business feature in the New York Times that that was um, pretty hagiographic. A lot of the stuff, and all of these would always have the like. Well, on the other hand, some say WeWork is overvalued, and so they'd all hit that point, but. That's not the takeaway from the article. And so the takeaway was this, it, it, it was buying WeWork's line and, and its vision that this is a community company and we're doing amazing things and look at all this money that's coming into us. And it wasn't, you know, sort of doing what I think we should be doing, which is employing critical thinking and asking like, well, are these investors right? Uh, like, does what about this makes any sense? Um, and so I, I guess to me, you know, sort of one of my, I, I cover venture capital and startups generally. And like the thing that frustrated me about Silicon Valley that made me want to cover this was 
so much of the coverage was essentially vi- buying the VC line about vision mm-hmm. and covering these companies as though they were disruptors uh, and had disrupted something organically. When if you look at it, it's like, well, this company's you know taken one percent of the mattress market by sort of underpricing mattresses and and uh, you know using a new type of ad. Does that mean they've completely disrupted and and they lose lots of money? Does that mean they've disrupted the mattress market, or does that mean that they're subsidized to sort of take a chunk of it? Now we're gonna take a quick break to hear from a sponsor, and we'll be right back. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I'm a pretty cynical person, but I and I've now gone through multiple cycles. And there is something to the fact of when you don't quite understand where something's going on, but you see people who seem to be successful and responsible who are endorsing it by you know putting their money into it. Um, you it's, you tend to think, well, they must know something, and maybe I don't get it. Um, and after Theranos, which actually was a fraud. Um, imploded. You heard a lot of Valley people saying, wow, you'd notice that, that there were no Silicon Valley people who were pumping up Theranos for the most part. And there weren't, um, you know, you didn't have biotech VCs investing in it. But when we get to WeWork, Benchmark, one of the most lauded firms in Silicon Valley, and we ran through JP Morgan, Fidelity, all, all uh, um, Goldman Sachs, all blue chip money people. All looked endowments. At, yes, all, all yeah. looked at this and said yes. <laughs> Does that give you when, when you're reporting this? Are you thinking there's got to be something I don't see? Because because if if Jamie Dimon gets it, why don't I get it? Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean that like it took a long time to sort of harden my view. I was like always sort of well, I should really point out that. Uh, First of all, is like, you know, the, the valuation is really high, but like maybe there's stuff I'm not seeing. I should give more credence and space in the story to sort of their view. But just like, I guess over time, the 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 missed targets and and um, the dream never started to materialize. It was just they were continuing to do the same thing, which was uh, spend twice as much every year, uh, raise twice as much every year and lose twice as much every year. And, and so it's sort of like, well, where where is this going? Um, and, and so that that was the thing that that really got me. There was no, I guess it, you, you never know. So I was never a hundred percent certain. I figured, well, maybe they'll like the market will buy into this too. And then they'll start, you know, have to figure out whatever their, um, AWS is and, and find some way to right. essentially, they'll, they'll, they'll fake it till they make it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, people sort of forget about it and, um, I'll go into a dustbin of history. So you and Marine sort of dominate the the skeptical coverage and investigative coverage of WeWork for a long time. Then they finally go public because they have to because SoftBank was filed to go to, public. Yes, uh, SoftBank was supposed to give them a ton of money, and then they walk away from it at the last minute. So they filed to go public. They put out their initial filing, the S one. And the way you tell it, a lot of the reaction, a lot of what sinks the IPO, is actually punditry. It's Scott Galloway. Uh, who's from the Pivot podcast. It's Matt Levine from Bloomberg. It's a million people piling on, going through. And it's all stuff that is disclosed in the S1. Were you surprised that when when 
when WeWork finally put out its numbers in public, that that things would turn so quickly just sort of once you saw numbers and then saw a discussion of the numbers, that that would be enough to sink it? Yes, uh, totally. Um, I, I was um, on a very ill-timed vacation, um, like hiking w- with, with no reception at the time that they put out the S1. And I remember there was a spot on reception and I turn on my phone, I get all these text messages of sort of like, what on earth? And I'm like, oh, wow, they must have filed their uh, S1. Um, and so then I eventually, when, when it's done with my trip and scan the headlines, I was just amazed at, at the avalanche of, of really negative press uh, about this stuff. I mean, it was the sort of the, the smart reporters, the, you know, like people at Bloomberg and whatnot that, you know, had been skeptical for some time. Um, but there, it was also just the, the broad, I don't know, the things I'd never heard of. Everyone was weighing in on WeWork. It was on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd say throughout 2019. And if you ask the former WeWork comms people, they would say the same thing that there was sort of increasing skepticism. Um, the comms people blame me. I, I think there's something to that, you know, meaning just our stories. Uh, but it was also, it was becoming really big and kind of like, if there's a $3 billion company and it's overvalued, it's harder to get people to know or think about it. But when it's a four, when it's literally the country's most valuable startup, there's a bit more of a spotlight on it. And so, um, anyway, the, I did not expect the, um, yeah, flood of, of negative coverage. And then it just got, you know, throughout August and September, it just kept staying at the top of the news cycle. I mean, everyone's editors seemed to be interested and, and that I also didn't see. And it kind of got, um, I, I, to the point where I think it, it, it was relatively unfair to WeWork. Uh, what was unfair? It, about, about that coverage. So there were a few things. Like, I, I think that... Um, Again, it's a company that inflated its valuation 20x or more beyond what it was. Um, a founder who spent more than irresponsibly, like not criminally, but but right up to the edge. Uh, someone who lied to you and other reporters multiple times. What what was unfair about the coverage after the fact? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that the end result was should have been any different or would have been any different, but um, just for the sake of reality and, and being based in it, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of people who seemed to be left with the impression that WeWork's basic business model was complete garbage. And, you know, the reality is like, Office space subleasing is a business. Uh, the way they were doing it, there were a lot of flaws with, but um, there's a, a value to that. The point is that WeWork was overvalued. They weren't, you know, um, doing something that had no absolutely no potential. So that was one. Um, and they weren't in the jewel business of selling nicotine to kids, right? It was yeah, selling exactly. a service to people who wanted it. Right. Yes. <laughs> They did not convince themselves that they're doing good for the world by by addicting kids to nicotine. They convinced themselves they were doing good for the world by selling people, subleasing people office space. Another anecdote was, so I, I had a a line in, in a, a large story that maybe we'll get to um, right b- before Adam stepped down as CEO. And it, it said, it had a kind of fun anecdote about how a couple of weeks after he had fired 7% of staff, he had an all hands meeting. Uh, tells everyone how sorry he is. And then a few minutes later, Run DMC comes out and plays a set and tequila shots are passed around. Um, I had wrote that down in my notes. <laughs> so a number he, of- He fires 7% of the staff and then says, all right. And I think it's only one of the remaining members of Run DMC comes out and yes. plays. It's tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but so so th- there was a little nuance there that um, was was in the story, but then not picked up when people would write their own version of the story, which is that there was a multi-week period. It, he did not on the spot fire these people. He was just 
kind of waxing poetic about how sad it was that he had fired these mm-hmm. people. Um, but, you know, a lot of people write the story, he fires them, and the next minute uh, he brings out, um, you know, they start playing It's Tricky. Uh, it's so, a pretty fine nuance. Yes. Um, and Usually you know, you'd separate those into two different two different events yeah you know the the point is people it was a pile on um and then another one and i actually don't think that this was very flawed uh but uh it sort of captures something is that uh he got a lot of uh, one of the sort of biggest issues that people glommed onto was how he sold the trademark to the word we uh, to the company for $6 million. Um, And obviously the irony is just so delicious. It's like, this is the most selfish man that that we've seen in in a generation. And he's literally profiting off the word we. Um, Now, it turns out that we sort of discovered for the book, this was one of the few conflicts that he really didn't seem to notice or or know about or personally direct. Now, so like, was it fair that that became essentially an issue that helped sink him? Who knows? Uh, the, The other side of that is he did create a company where it was unremarkable that uh, and lawyers looking it over and PR people looking it over didn't think it totally jumped out that the CEO was profiting off the word we. <laughs> right. They knew they were going to get grief for all sorts of things in the S1. And it didn't didn't occur to them that this was going to be an issue. Or yeah, it didn't it occur like, to most in, of them. I, I mean, one of the amusing things is the PR team had this like incredibly long list of things, you know, I forget what, 10 plus pages of things that are probably going to jump out in the S1 to reporters and our risks. And this was in there. And they brought it up at a meeting, but it was not like number one. I mean, like, the, yeah. <laughs> so I remember the the implosion of WeWork being just this crazy story that went on for a good couple weeks, which is a very long time in, in a modern news cycle for people to be enraptured by this. And and at one point, you know, anything you could find that was remotely salacious, and there's a lot of stuff we, would start floating out. There was something about uh, how they're their little phone booths turns out they had a noxious chemical <laughs> in them or something. And I remember literally like I would wait for Matt Levine's column, his newsletter uh, to pop up at 10 or 11 because I just wanted to read what Matt Levine had to say about, about WeWork that day. At some point, you guys, uh, someone says, this is a great book. Let's have the guys who, who wrote the definitive story write the definitive book. At the same time, a million other people pile in. Um, and prior to publication of this book, there's another book, uh, Reese Weideman, uh, from New York Magazine, my Vox Media co-workers put out a book. Bloomberg did a podcast series. Forbes, which did a lot of laudatory coverage, now has a, a WeWork tell-all that's on Hulu uh, documentary. Maybe I'm probably missing some other stuff. What is it, what is it like to go in writing a book that's going to be the definitive story, knowing that others are doing the same thing at the same time and are probably going to beat you to market? Yeah, so it was um, a, a sort of fascinating WeWork-like frenzy th- that happened right after like, that I was completely unprepared for. I mean, you know, it seemed at a certain point there were going to be like $47 billion worth of, of WeWork content, um, you, you know, things made a derivative of, of WeWork's fall. There's a Wondery podcast, there's an Apple TV show coming, there was an HBO Max um, sort of segment. Uh, a third book apparently is coming uh, it, it was stressful. Um, we sort of, you know, played this game theory with, uh, Reeves Wideman, where I think he, which by the way, it's a good book. I, I recommend people get it. I like Reeves. He's a good reporter. Um, I think he essentially bet that he was signing his deal after we did. So he had to beat us. And so 
uh, he really beat us. And and um, book came out last year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, one of the products is we end up having a, a ton more sort of new fun stuff and juicy details uh, with two reporters and like an, an extra large number of months to work on it. And so, you know, I mean, I guess we weren't terribly concerned about his details beating us, but, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like convincing people to read two WeWork books is a lot, right? So, mm-hmm. so that, that or to read the WeWork book after they've seen the WeWork documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, if, if I could have done this again and been educated on all this whole process, I would have said we should release our book, uh, you know, a week before the Hulu documentary and, uh, then everyone will care about WeWork and, and not be saturated with it. Now, I mean, we'll find out in a few weeks, like, mm-hmm. are people saturated with WeWork's story? Like, I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> don't say that on the podcast, Rudy, the book. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I think people sort of forget how, even though it's only been, you know, two years, forget how crazy this was until yeah. they're reminded. People are like, WeWork, that was big, right? Like, yeah, it was the country's most valuable startup and it was all a mirage. Like, that's a pretty interesting story. And uh, yeah, so, um, and then, I don't know, we had a, a film deal too that, that that fell apart when the Apple TV thing came about. So uh, it's not like we didn't benefit from this ourselves. Um, but uh, yeah, that it went to Amazon. Um, and, uh, then Apple TV had bought Wondery, uh, mm-hmm. Wondery's podcast, um, the rights to Wondery's podcast. And then Amazon bought Wondery, uh, but Apple TV was, was moving ahead rather swiftly with, with their own, uh, project. So you learned some lessons about, about publishing a book about a, a, a amazing story. What did we learn broadly about investing in startups and valuations and financial controls? Cause it seems like Nothing, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the... So it's funny. When, when we started this this book, our expectation was the epilogue, the end, was going to be that WeWork was the bookend to this era of insanity um, in Silicon Valley where uh, mattress companies were tech companies and um, ride-hailing companies lose $4 billion a year. And uh, we thought... The, and for the first few months after the WeWork collapse, that really did seem to be the reality. There was actually... People forget it. There was a huge chill in, in the funding market in Silicon Valley, uh, especially for companies with large losses. SoftBank had all of its, its... Or almost all of its companies like completely change their you know, approaches to stop growing, which was their instruction beforehand. And, and SoftBank has said, cutting. we're going to give you a ton of money. We want you to grow as much as possible. And in fact, that will be our strategy. You're going to push everyone else out of the market with our money. And that's the stra- that's how you'll win. And then, of course, in most cases, that didn't work. Right. And so then after WeWork, they did a 180 and they're like, actually, we meant you need to instead of grow, we meant profit. And like, it's like, well, you gave us all this money to lose, you know, to spend, which which brings losses. So it was like a complete whiplash for these founders. And then, you know, then the pandemic happened and it was like, wow, it looks like everything is going to go to hell. And WeWork will really have been the bookend. And then, you know, two months later, the stock market goes insane and tech companies go insane on, on the stock market. And you know, fast forward to the end of, of 2020, early 2021, when we were finishing up the the epilogue. And uh, it was a completely different story. W- what happened was no one really learned anything. Um, things were getting really highly valued. And particularly in SPAC land, you just see essentially these, these mini WeWorks going public with no revenue at all and huge billions, but they're selling a vision 
uh, vision that happens to be in vogue. Yeah, I mean, at least at, at least at least we were had a company and had revenue, and people were buying things. We're talking about electric car makers that don't make electric cars, and in some cases, maybe never will. Yeah, Nikola is just this like has this really funny set of parallels where. Uh, has a really charismatic, outspoken founder. He took out $100 million or so before the company went public. He bought a, a ranch with some of the money and then told the Wall Street Journal, as did Adam, that he wanted to turn it into a uh, organic farm. He he got a jet. Uh, instead of buying a wave pool company, he bought a jet ski company. Like... <laughs> And and that's a company that had no no appreciable revenue um, and just a vision for making a hydrogen truck network. Uh, and it's still worth like seven billion dollars or six billion dollars. I mean, it makes your concerns about, you know, are we overvaluing WeWork, um, which is an existing company, seem almost quaint, right? Because you've got a new set of investors, theoretically, these these day traders on Robinhood who are, uh, are you know, classically GameStop, right? They're just doing it for memes and lulls and, and there's no one's even pretending to look at valuation anymore. It's just fun to invest in. And then if you're a real investor, you piggyback on that because it's a way for you to make money. And and the idea of what, what is a company actually worth is, is now totally abstract, it seems, at least in this current moment. Totally. It, it, it sort of makes me wonder what, what on earth we're all doing here as reporters, because it's like, what's Thank the you. point? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, with WeWork, the, the, the lesson at first was, well, the public markets were, were the splash of cold water. They, they were reality setting in. And now if you look at the public markets in pockets, so, you know, electric vehicle companies, uh, 1990s mall retailers, that there's just this complete irrationality that that's, uh, you know, you talk to some of the traders and they will say the quiet part out loud. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm only investing in this not because I think it's well valued, but because I think someone else is going to pay a, a higher price for my share. Um, it's like, well, that, that looks mm -hmm. nice between quotes. Um, <laughs> no one ever said that out loud about WeWork. But yeah, it, it really sort of questions the whole sense of reality and rationality uh, around these things. But I guess like, you know, this is what, what bubbles, which can inflate, and that doesn't mean they're going to pop, uh, do. And so when you have a ton of money pouring into stuff, um, normal rules go away and it's sort of hard to figure out what's what. Yeah. I mean, people were, were, were decrying the dot-com bubble for years and selling short against it. And eventually they gave up because the market was beating them into submission and they couldn't do it. And eventually the bubble popped, but being right in, you know, 1998 didn't help you if the bubble kept going for two more years. I don't want to end on a down note. How about this for a, for an upbeat note? You wrote an excellent book. You and Maureen wrote an excellent book. I recommend it to everyone who's listening to this podcast. If you like the nerdy, businessy, fundraising stuff that we often get into in this podcast, it has a big chunk of this book. Um, it's quite a tale. Good job, Elliot. I, I would just like to say we also have lots of salacious uh, lives of the rich and famous element to to keep readers interested. So. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. There's also, but not not it's sexless. Uh, it's sexless. But, it's sexless. Um, There's some but, peeing on tents, but that's... that's <laughs> um, peeing on tents. I, if they had that much money, do you think they would get up into to more sexy hijinks? Maybe they did. Maybe that's the, the sequel. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Thanks again to Elliot Brown. Been reading Elliot's stuff for a long time. It was great to talk to him. Thanks, as always, to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing the show. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing you this show for free. And thanks to you guys for listening and telling other people about the show and telling me what you'd like to hear more about. We'll see you soon. <laughs>